Hello and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Raziel and today my guest is Tim Scanlon. He's the Vice President of Sports Broadcast and Media at Octagon. Tim is incredible. This was such a fun conversation getting to understand where he came from and being a producer for a Midwest sports channel to now running and being a part of the representative team for many different members of the media. It's very, very interesting how this progressed. He spent over around 10 years, if I'm not mistaken, at ESPN for a while. Uh, No, significantly longer than that, I take it back. But Tim was incredible. He was so much, so much fun, and there's so much you can learn from him in this conversation. So I hope you all enjoy this conversation with Tim Scanlon. Today, my special, special guest on the For the Love of Sports podcast, I have Tim Scanlon. He's the Vice President of Sports Broadcast and Media at Octagon, formerly the Vice President of Talent Management and Production at ESPN, and was also an executive producer for some Midwest sports channels for around 10 years, including with the Minnesota Twins, Timberwolves, North Stars, if any of us forgot who they, those were, the Dallas Stars now, and the University of Michigan sports teams. Tim, thanks for hanging out with me today. Oh, thank you, Michael. It's nice to be here. Pleasure is all mine. You've met and spoken with and shook hands with a lot of the people that I aspire to one day get there. So if I can live a little through you through this conversation, sure, I'm excited for it. So Tim, first question I have for everybody on the For the Love of Sports podcast is, why do you love sports so much? You know, it goes all the way back to growing up in a big Midwest family. Um, my brothers were we're all fans of the Vikings, Twins, North Stars, as you mentioned. Even pre-Timberwolves days, we used to watch the Muhammad Ali fights um, and hockey night in Canada coming down from, from Canada. So it started there. We would play sports in the backyard. And how I think I got into media was I would always announce the games in the backyard and I would organize them. I would take the time to line the field with flour if we were playing football or lay out the diamond if we were playing baseball. And I would try to build rivalries in the neighborhood uh, just because I liked it. I liked the ability to maybe even, I guess, fantasize that we were playing the actual game and I would announce it. And I would drive my friends crazy. They'd, would you shut up? You know, especially if I got a strikeout or something else. But um, I, just, I, guess, I guess I just always knew I was gonna be in that, this arena. And I really wanted to, Michael, start out being a talent. I would emulate, I would, I would watch broadcasters on television and listen to them on the radio and try to then emulate that style, um, storytelling and, and pacing and cadence. And, uh, and then I listened to my voice on, on, on <laughs> recording and that way, I don't have a voice for this. Uh, and I ended up falling into production. And I think I was a good producer because I wanted to be a talent so bad and I could work with talent. My very first broadcast pair that I worked with uh, are still working today. Jim Cott was my analyst on the Twins telecast and Ted Robinson was my play-by-play guy. And I learned so much from both of them, but at the same time I was good at dealing with them because I, I wanted to be a talent. So, and I'm sure you're, you're the same way that you're going to be good with talent or good with interviews because you want to be in this this arena it's it's a fun place uh, i just love talking to people you know my yeah. parents always made fun of me growing up you know i could talk anybody's ear off and you know i always ask a lot of questions so i thought you know what why not ask some in more I'll serve you well yes I'll hopefully serve in hopefully any cr- cross your fingers for me tim <laughs> cross your fingers for me but i do love that as you said you know you used to set up the diamond used to announce the games i mean what little kid didn't announce the games i would announce the game by myself with you know me on first second and third up to bat and pitching and we'll just see what happens i guess so (laughs) it was always so fun doing that at a young age and uh it sounds like sports journalism broadcast that was kind of always in the cards but i guess at what point 
you know, for a lot of people, it's, it's hard to kind of come to terms with that. As weird as it sounds, like you can actually do this as a career. At what point did you decide like, oh, this isn't just something funny and cute that I want to do? Like, when did you become hardcore in it and invested in saying, okay, this is the direction I'm going to be taking my life? It was, it was the middle of my freshman year at the University of Minnesota. And I attended um, a, it was a University of Minnesota football game. And I attended via the school newspaper. I, I used to write for the Minnesota Daily. And I sat and I watched the student radio team do the game. And I thought, I want to do that. That's what I, it's exactly what I was doing in the backyard. So I just kind of angled my, my career in that direction. I was, I started out being, I think, a theater major and switched to speech comm and then added journalism and really just use that as my driving focus to get through school. I interned at all four stations uh, in the Twin Cities and one radio station and all of them in the sports department and watched, studied, learned. And Michael, like you, I networked uh, as aggressively as I could. And that led to my first job, which was at WCCO TV on the assignment desk. Uh, I used to work in the dispatch shack. I'd listen to the police monitors and there was a house fire here. I would get the, the uh, responsibility to determine, do we, we want to go cover that? And then from there, uh, it just, I, I kind of grew up through the newscasts, the noon report, the afternoon, and then finally on the 10 p.m., which was the highest rated show. And then the station landed the twins rights and that's how they came to me and said, would you want to be the producer? And I said, I, I would love it. So let's do it. That's Which a that really led to a 10 year career at Midwest Sports Channel and WCCO. And then ESPN hired me in 96 to come and manage their live event baseball coverage. So your first job had literally nothing to do with sports until the television station acquired the rights to the twins. Exactly. I mean, the first paid job, my internships yeah, were all in the sports, uh, sports category, but my first paid job was in news and primarily just to get into the station. So my advice to young people out there is to, you know, sometimes it's the job you want is not the one you're going to start with. And when you get in, that's hard work and, uh, you know, learning, networking, determination, it all pays off. And I had a chance to take a job at, uh, in sales at the same time, which would have paid quite a bit more. And I thought, I'll never be happy if I don't at least try for this. And that's, it's led to this career. That, that and I'm with a great company in Octagon, a really good company. So. Yes, I, I, I know a few people that work at Octagon and they all talk extremely, extremely yeah. um, highly of the company and all the things that they do. But uh, just, just, I just want to touch on that again, just for a second. I mean, so you, as you said, you just got the job. You just wanted to put your foot in the door because you needed the experience in TV or at least in some capacity, right? Like whether it was yeah. with sports or with news, how, how, like, when did you find out that they were acquiring the rights to the twins and how ecstatic were you for that? that day? <laughs> I, it's funny, Michael, I was sending out my sports reels while I was working on the assignment desk. So I was still angling, I was still going for my beginning job somewhere else. And it was right about the middle of uh, the, the first year that I got moved up, which was 1985 up to the 10 p.m. report. The station manager approached me, he said, I know you wanna work in sports and I might have an angle for you. And he said, we're about to acquire the Minnesota Twins rights and we're gonna launch a new cable regional sports channel called Midwest Sports Channel. It's now called Fox Sports North. Fox Sports acquired it sometime after I left. But uh, I thought, why not? This is, this is the opportunity. I'm going to work in sports. It's a chance to be a part of a startup. And uh, you know, my, my, first, uh, my first assignment was to produce a, a sports show. It was actually a sports comedy show, but it gave me my I found my legs, my producing legs, working with talent, creating formats, back timing a show. And, and, you know, really that it was a brilliant move by the station manager to have me start there. And then the twins season started with spring training of 1980, 80, it was after the world series, 88, 1988. So it was the, that's when we picked up the rights and, uh, that very first spring training game went to no one. <laughs> I got down there and the cable companies pulled the cable on Midwest Sports Channel. 
So my very first telecast basically was, it, it went nowhere. All the rights holders pulled the plug and I'll never forget it. It kind of took the pressure off, but yeah, um, what a thrill. And I was, I was excited for the next game already. So that's so cool. I yeah. mean, just, just the opportunity, as you said, you don't know you, the first job you're going to get, you're going to work very hard. And sometimes things like this happen. I don't believe in luck personally. I don't believe in coincidences. You were, you worked really hard to put yourself in the right place at the right time. And then you got this opportunity to come along with it because so many people could easily go to that job and kind of say, okay, I got into the industry. Now let me focus on getting to where I want to be in the industry. Yeah. Instead, as you said, you rose all the way to the 10 o'clock show with the highest rating. So clearly you were working very hard. And then when this incredible opportunity comes along, you're able to then work for um, and work with the twins. And it's pretty funny that first, uh, that first show, as you said, not too much pressure on that. One if no one could see it. <laughs> yeah, Tinker field in Orlando. Um, and it was twins Cardinals. I, I just remember it, it, they called me and they said, guess what? We've been our plug. They've pulled the plug on the channel. So we're still going to do the telecast. We'll tape it. We'll re-air it. No one will see it, but, um, but you know what, Michael, it, it does, it speaks to where sometimes the career finds you. Like I started out wanting to be in front of the camera. And once I started producing, I found my, my strength or my lane. I would say, stay in your lane, know your, know where, what you're good at. So I, I, my career kind of found me and that led to a 20 year career at ESPN, rose to the ranks of VP of live events. Um, and then after the World Cup in 2010, because I was good with talent, John Skipper and Norby Williamson asked me to, to move over into the talent office and to help recruit across all platforms, all shows. And they were thrilled with the job that I had put together, the team that I put together for the 2010 World Cup, which was international in scope. And uh, it led to a lot of, it led to a couple of awards for ESPN and, and it really kind of changed the way Disney and ESPN were viewed in the world of international sports, soccer in particular. So um, again, all, they, going all the way back to that decision to get in the producer chair and then flash forward all the way to now, it, that was the move that really helped launch my career. If there's a fork in the road, uh, as the great Yogi Berra says, just take it and, and run with it and do whatever you can because- <laughs> When you come so to the fork, take it. Just take it, right? And I just think yeah. it's so it's so cool how you were, you know, I always love kind of like looking back and seeing, and that's why I love to have these types of conversations because to see where you are now and really where that event was, because there's always like specific moment in time yeah. that you could see there is that fork and which did you turn? Did you go right? Did you go left? And clearly yeah. you went right. Um, and it was the correct answer as it always is. And it's funny. And, and um, just a little bit more with, with Midwest sports. I mean, being at, you know, at media market in Minnesota, not quite what it is here around the New York City area. You know, I actually had the opportunity to speak with a beat writer who worked for the A's and then moved on to the Boston Globe. And the difference is, he said, you know, it's a mom and pop shop versus like this Fortune 500 company. Did it help working with, you know, the teams you grew up watching? Did, did that like, was there any extra benefit to that? Or was it more pressure because you knew all your friends were watching? <laughs> Michael, great question. I, I never thought about that. I Because I was a fan of the team, I think my instincts uh, were to, uh, it actually made it easier knowing what was a, a, a big moment. Scott Erickson's no-hitter, I knew that was a big moment. Twins hadn't had one in a long time. Kirby Puckett's uh, you know, per performance through the, my 10 years of production there. I was going to say his whole career, oh, right? Yeah. yeah. And I was fortunate. I had a World Series year in 91. And, uh, but I also I had a couple of last place years. And I, I, I used to joke with the younger Twins players, listen, this is a long season, we're in last place, swing at everything and run till you're out. Let's, let's get these games over faster. <laughs> so I, I used to that. laugh at it. And it, it became a phrase that we all used, swing at everything and run till you're out. I um, love it. But, uh, but no, what, it was a great experience. And really to a chance to produce my favorite team's games. That was, it was huge. I mean, that, and then that, that led to, um, after the twins rights, they picked up the North stars. That was my next professional sport. And so I took on both sports and they, they kind of, it kind of worked. There was some overlap and 
that's where I trained in my protege, who's uh, now the senior VP of Fox Sports Regional, um, actually now for Sinclair, and Mike Conley lives out in LA. But Mike, I, I needed Mike because I couldn't do everything. We added the University of Minnesota hockey and basketball to our, our schedule, and it was really just the two of us doing all of these sports. And this was at a time, Michael, where I, I produced 158 of the Twins' 162 games. They just weren't on national TV that much back then. And, and we, there was a pregame show in front of everyone. So it was a lot of television, a lot of time away from my family. And, uh, you know, it's, but it, it provided for a great life. And, you know, to this day, I had no regrets and a lot of great memories and a lot of great friendships. Still friends with a lot of those Twins players, Tom Kelly. Um, and then that led to that career with ESPN's baseball coverage. I had met John Miller and Joe Morgan before I actually worked with them because they knew me from as the Twins producer. And, and then, you know, just I had known Bud Selig and the team at MLB because I had to deal with them on a regional basis. Mm-hmm. And now I'm managing ESPN's coverage, you know, 10 years later. So I, it is about networking. It's, it's constant, Michael. And all the relationships I made in the North Stars, college sports, that helped me on every level going forward. Because I, being at ESPN, it's all about college sports, right? They own college football. They own college basketball for the most part, except for the Final Four. But all those personalities and SIDs and coaches, a lot of them became announcers. So they would come back, they'd see me, they would recognize me from years ago. So um, the networking paid off and it helps at every level. It always does. I, I love networking. If you can find one person in a night that you think you can help in some capacity and then execute upon helping them. Um, I'm a big universe guy. I'm a big karma guy. It's going to come back to you in some way, shape or form. And again, I just, I think it's got to be so cool. Me just being, I'm a huge baseball fan. I'm a very big Mets fan. So, uh, you know, haven't seen too, too much winning in my life, but I think if I could do one thing like what you did, you know, be able to work with and, you know, work every single day. Now I'm sure in those, those real long seasons where you're losing, you know, those catchphrases (laughs) come in handy, but that just has to be the coolest job. And then, so moving to ESPN, what, where does that opportunity come from? Especially considering, again, you're, you're out in Minnesota. It's not yeah. a huge market. You don't get too many, um, you know, nationally televised games. How do you, like, I know you said you, you networked to get in with a lot of people, but that seems, where are you networking? You know, yeah. are you, when you're in New York City, are you going to the offices? Are you going to Bristol? Like, how, how did you even find those no. people at that point? Great, really good question. And it's a, it's a good story. But let, let me just at least say that, you're a fan of a team that has the very best announced team in baseball. I love them so much. Yeah, it's incredible. There's, there's no questions from storytelling to stats. Kurt Gowdy Jr. is a really good friend. We worked the Little League World Series together. I always tell him, you have that team and you can't lose it. That is the network, right? No, it's so, radio too. Let's not yeah. forget about radio. I mean, Howie Rose and yeah. uh, now Wayne Randazzo on the radio, but there's nothing. Oh, yeah, no, they're radio. It, it, just listening to Keith market. Hernandez, yeah. just listening to Keith Hernandez talk about his cat. I could do that for three <laughs> hours all day for whatever reason. And I, that's the one thing I'm missing the most. There's no baseball because there's no oh, Jerry, Keith and Ron, but I know we'll, we'll I know. get it back. It's coming back. We know it that. will. It's coming it back. definitely will. Um, so uh, major league baseball would have these, these meetings in January in Palm, in Palm Springs, California. First of all, kind of a boondoggle, right? <laughs> Come and they would, you would actually go out and do all your transmission deals at this meeting. It was called the Hughes meetings, you know, going back to Howard Hughes with the satellite uh, business. So the Hughes meetings really kind of morphed into fiber meetings. And I don't even think they're held anymore. But everyone would show up at these meetings, including ESPN, including NBC Sports, if they were the national rights holder, or then CBS for a while. And uh, you would lay, you would present to the rest of the rights holders in this big a seminar room, what your plans were for and what your needs would be for from a production standpoint and from a transmission standpoint. And it was there I met Jed Drake from ESPN at a dinner. And we were just talking about the levels of coverage. And I was telling him what a fan I was of NBC or the Sunday Night Baseball's coverage. I said, there's just nobody doing it at that level, you know, with the down the line shots and uh, state of the art, super slow-mo and that relationship turned into a friendship in one of those meetings. And 
when he got promoted, he called me up and said, would you want this job? And uh, I, I said, yeah, I, I'm ready to take that next step. So it was in 1996. I, I moved in February to head up ESPN's baseball coverage. There were 12 games a week, which, you know, was a lot. It was a lot of double headers, a day game, Sunday night flagship show, Monday night baseball. So it was, it was, a, it was trial by fire, and I, I was leading a lot of people in a hurry. But uh, I learned a lot, and Jed taught me a lot as a leader, and um, he helped my career all the way through to until I came to Octagon in 2015. And to this day, you know, those, all those people that I worked with and still deal with at ESPN when I negotiate my clients' contracts back to ESPN, those are lifelong friends and will be, you know. That is, it's, so. it's awesome. And, you know, as we were saying, I think before we got on, you know, the sports industry is a lot smaller than you think it is. And there's oh, a yeah. lot of people you're going to run into and you realize once you're connected to a couple people, you're only a few degrees away from everybody else. Um, and you know, Here's a couple for you. Michael, here's yeah. a couple for you. So Mark Quinzel, who's now the head of NFL Network, was Jed's boss. He, he, in fact, actually hired me at ESPN. So I've got that relationship. Eric Shanks, who runs Fox Sports, worked on my college basketball games at Indiana. He was a sophomore at Indiana. And I saw how smart he was and how brilliant he was. And I recommended him to CBS for the Olympic coverage in 1994. And that Olympic team included Richie Zients, Sandy Grossman, and that was the, the winner that Fox Sports took the NFC rights away from CBS. And so all of them were trying to figure out how do we get to Fox Sports in the middle of the Winter Olympics in, in uh, 1994. But Eric's career just took off from there, and now he's the president of Fox Sports. Uh, David Burson worked with me at ESPN as uh, he was the number two guy in programming. And I used to always tease him that he would be the guy leading or running the network. And now he's going to run CBS Sports when Sean steps down. So it's just a couple of examples how people you work with now are going to be in positions later. And as long as you've, you've networked and spent the time with them, that'll pay dividends, not just for yourself, but for the industry. Because they'll know who you are, where you're coming from. You've built up a trust level with them and uh, and – I just think it's, I can't emphasize that enough. Network, network, network. And, and it can't be, you know, forget about somebody as soon as you're on to the next level. Remember them. If they're still somewhere else, go back and check in on them. So. And I think you make a really good point. Um, you know, all the people that you, you worked with kind of one-to-one, or at least that were on, you know, the same level at you at the time, they're all going to rise with you through the ranks. Mm -hmm. And I think one people always forget when it comes to networking is they're always looking like, okay, I want to get to the CEO. I want to get to the vice president of this company. But dude, you're 22 years old. <laughs> uh, like, that guy's going to be nice. He might give you a handshake and say, hey, hi, how's it going? Most of the time, maybe you're going to get lucky, but there's a lot of people that you can network with that are your age or a couple years older, a couple years younger that when you're 35, 45, they're going to be in much higher positions just like yourself. No and that's doubt. where those relationships can come back into account. I mean, obviously keep them if you can, but you know, the, I think that's one thing. And I learned that recently through one of these conversations I got to have was, you know, network with the people that are around you. Don't just try and shoot, you know, don't just shoot for the CEO of every company or the CMO. Try also and talk to the people around you. Also people younger than you. Uh, here, here's some great advice. Uh, we did this, this, element called Living Legends on Wednesday Night Baseball, where we, we invited Kurt Gowdy Sr., uh, Ernie Harwell, Keith Jackson. Um, there were just a number of, of great baseball announcers that we all kind of grew up with. But we started the, the element with Kurt Gowdy Sr., you know, the cowboy, America, great American sportsman. And after that telecast, which was Red, Yankees at Red Sox in Fenway, we went back to Kurt's senior's apartment and he gave me some advice. He said, my mom always said, keep your friends young as you age. It'll keep you younger. <laughs> he said, Tim, you're a friend, so therefore I'm, I'm younger today. And that was back when I was in my 30s. And uh, so, Michael, so that's, I always give people that advice. It's not just going up. It's also who's coming up after you? Who are you going to pull up along with you? And who's going to take your job eventually? 
Well, hey, Tim, Tim, you can be friends with me any day of the week. How does that sound? If I can keep you a little young, believe me, I will do my best. I promise you that. Um, and through your time at ESPN, I mean, I'm sure the stories are incredible. Some you can say on air, of course, yeah. some, some you can't. But I mean, what was it like just kind of, again, just developing relationships with people to allow you to rise from coordinating producers, you said, of those 12 MLB games a week, and then allowing you to go to, you know, senior coordinator, you know, eight years before, you know, the senior kind of came on, you got live events in general. Like, what did you do? And what was your mindset through this process to make sure like, hey, you got this job, but now you want to take it to the top, you want to become that VP? What did you do on a daily basis to make sure that that happened? Michael, really good question. I, I think it was that that ESPN is, is a, like a great college campus. Everyone there is super smart. The PAs to the president of the company, everyone is dialed in on whatever they're working on. They're up to date. They read all the clippings. And so I try to do that every day. I tried to know as much about everything that I was covering on a daily basis, just to stay relevant, just to, just to stay into a, a conversation. Um, so that was one thing is always, always keep yourself as informed as possible. And then I think it was just learn from the best. If you were a good leader, then they would give you more responsibility. And, you know, if you treated people right, it's all, it always comes back to people because at the end of the day, you're only as good as the people that are working. And I think what you saw this past weekend with the NFL draft was how great that team is even in a, a smaller capacity than they were back when I was working there, um, they were able to pull off something magnificent in a very difficult setting. And it's because of the quality of the people, how they treat people and, and I think, uh, and how, they, how they're passionate about sports. And I think going back to that, Michael, all the way back to that kid in the backyard, I think that having that passion for what you cover does resonate as you keep growing in your career. And some of it's out of your control. Some of you, somebody will say, oh, we're going to promote you instead of them. It, you roll with it. And you also don't get yourself too, don't think too highly of yourself. Don't think too low if you don't get the job. And, and just be happy that you're in the world of sports. So Exactly. Perspective is everything, right? If you yeah. can just remember that you're doing something that people would, you're getting paid to do something that a lot of people would pay to do. I think that that opportunity is pretty cool. And, and, you know, just you brought up the draft and I think they did an incredible job. And I think with times like this, you know, in this pandemic where we can't do everything that we want to do and everything's limited, a lot of good things will come from this in some capacity. And I think the one thing that I think is very important that will come from this is just you heard it and I'm sure you saw it as well. And just the opportunity to go into these coaches' homes and these GMs' homes and see their kids and all the weird and wacky stuff, especially like Mike Vrabel, like whatever the heck was going on there. But <laughs> then you saw Cliff Kingsbury sitting on his couch and his I wanted know, 10, that, I wanted thousand. that I wanted that Kingsbury. Right? Like, How great does that look? The grass is clearly fake. I lived in Arizona. The, gla the grass is oh, fake there. Oh, yeah. That was like weird. artificial turf back there. But he has this giant fireplace like 100 yards away from him just lit. And it's just like, oh, it's perfectly placed in the <laughs> shot. Like, get out of here, man. But it's just cool that we got to go into their homes. And I guess like from your standpoint, from the, the media and the talent standpoint, like how much do you think that will change this type of event moving forward potentially now that the fans have this different access that we never saw that it turns out we really, really liked? It's a really good observation, Michael. Stop, I, stop, I do... stop. Just, just answer that you're good, man. No worries. No, it, Thank you. I appreciate it, but it's all good. It, 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 what this has turned us all into is home set designers. We're, we're all positioning things behind us and right. making sure your house looks as good or as clean as, as, as possible. I saw a piece on CBS Sunday morning where they talked about, like, if possible, place an award <laughs> behind you so it's an award-winning shot. <laughs> I don't know if you can see this behind me, but this is this is my fiancé, and this is us nice. on our um, uh, engagement. And if you can see in my hand right there, I'm actually oh. kissing my fantasy football trophy. Oh, that's um, great. So that's my girlfriend, <laughs> she is incredible. She allowed me to take my fantasy football trophy to our engagement shoot. Our photographer laughed at me and I said, no, we got at least 10 or 15 shots in us. So let's, so, so this is what I got. This, thank you. Sure. It's, it's an old award. I, I don't own it anymore, but I completely agree. It's good to have. I, I think you're going to see more, um, more remote 
shots like that in, in a lot of like that type of coverage going forward because this, what you and I are doing right now, this is the new level of acceptance on primetime television. I mean, that's what it's forced us into is this, this stay-at-home model, but people accept it because it's intimate, it's real, you can't, you know, you can't dress it up and like those ESPN sets are amazing and mm -hmm. not just ESPN, Fox, NFL, ABC, NBC, all of them. They all have great, beautiful television sets. And what we've learned is you really don't need all that, you know, that, that people can be at home and deliver the nightly news, which is, is incredible. The, the thing about the draft is, you know, being in Vegas, you would have had all those shots of the crowds and fan reactions but everything else would have been in the remote world. So what you really didn't get was the Vegas, that live thing, but it, you know, and yes, you kind of miss that, that event, that mm -hmm. the large crowd. And, and we will miss that. If we're going to watch this Korean baseball that ESPN is about to cut a deal with, it'll be an odd experience for all of us. They, they may even, they're thinking about piping in crowd noise just to create that event. But Let's try it without it. Let's see if that if people will watch and they'll accept it for what it is. Um, but it will it will change us. It'll change the way. It. I mean, this is this is going to be, you know, an event that you and I will remember for the rest of our lives, and it's going to have a profound economic impact, um, not just on all of us and the economy, but in particular the world of sports. So you're going to see a lot more remote type production announcers in a studio in Bristol or in Stanford um, and people really watching how they spend money on production. And that, that's going to affect my world because I represent people in front of the camera, play-by-play -play, reporter, what jobs will be necessary? What will, what will the relevant positions be and how important will it be to be like a, a, a celebrity, you know, and where, who will get the, who will get those best jobs in television, you know, and they do, they need to be in the city that they're, they thought they were going to work in. Maybe not. So um, I just tell all my clients, stay, stay relevant, keep doing what you're doing, Michael. And, uh, and, you know, continue to look for ways to be in front of the sports fan right now. That, but also it's one thing I love to spread is positivity. Right. Like, obviously, we have to talk about the coronavirus pandemic a little bit because it's, yeah. it's going to be, as you said, one of the biggest moments of our life. And it's, it's a moment that lasts, you know, potentially three months, depending no on where in the world you are. And, you know, I'm up here in New York City, so uh, right outside of the city. And it's, it's very, yeah. it's bad here. Right. It's, it's bad for me to leave my house occasionally. And it's unfortunate, but there's also great stories like yourself where I want people to come back and listen to this a year later to see what Tim's <laughs> up to. Right. And I think that part's important. He didn't know what because... he was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> the evergreen. Yeah. Maybe that's true. Maybe we can get old takes disposed. That'd be pretty cool. Oh, um, but... Gosh, I was just, I just saw one recently, uh, um, an NFL prediction on, on a, on a player where the prediction backfired was seven years old and love those. He couldn't have been more wrong. And I'm yep. thinking, Oh, sometimes that's not fair, but, it is what uh, it is. It is what we, it is. We, we, want, we want everybody to have these opinions. We're like, you got to have a strong opinion. You can't go one way or the other. Yep. And then once once you're wrong, we all like to roast you for it. So, hey, oh, that's, that's sports, man. What are you going to do? Build them um, up on the way up and tear them down. That's, hey, that's, that's America, really, if we're being honest. But um, so I do want to talk a little bit about, like, getting into the talents. Sure. Uh, you were in live production, you know, for 10 years at, at Midwest Sports, and then you moved to ESPN, way more live production at really the biggest scale. I mean, the worldwide leader in sports is it's self-proclaimed, but it's also real. It's not even a question. So being in the live, on the live side there, man, not managing, but working with the talent, at what point, you know, you said it uh, before, we kind of glossed over it a little bit, but at what point did the higher ups or what point did you realize, like, actually, I don't want to work on the live production anymore. I actually want to work on the, with the people that work on the live production and, and how does that transition happen? I think it's, 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 it's good management. People recognize what other people are really good at. And I think, I think what uh, my bosses saw after world cup and also with the baseball team that I put together, that I had a skill with that, that I could recruit and get people to come to Bristol and work 
And therefore I got moved into the talent office to recruit, to develop, to negotiate deals. Um, and also just encourage and, and take somebody that may be struggling and try to get them on the right path. Um, and I think that that's led to me to this whole career, you know, after uh, I left ESPN, a number of agencies reached out knowing that I kind of knew everybody at the, in Bristol and everybody at, at every level really. And the, more than anything, it's like the Intel, but the, uh, they knew I was good with people and, and I negotiated deals and I knew all the agents in the business. So um, when I became one, which everybody teased me about, um, they all, it was funny to go to the first big event because they're all giving me a hard time. Oh, now you're on this side. And I negotiated with all of them. So, um, and I always tell my clients or prospective clients, listen, don't just interview me, talk to other people. And if you have a question, I know who's, I know them all, they're all really good. There's some real stars in the business and they've been doing it a long time. And, you know, there's, it all depends on that relationship, Michael. It comes down to if you have a good relationship with your client and you become a great team, then you're really partners and then the network becomes your client. So you're doing a deal with Fox Sports. Fox is your client because you want Fox to like your partner and you hope to make it a win-win and a great career move for everybody. And if that person stays there for 20 years, voila. You know, if you read it right, they can grow, develop, um, be rewarded, be given opportunity, challenged. Those are, that's, that's why I, this, this, this is fulfilling for me now because of that. And I, I ended up helping a lot of younger people who were not really my clients. They'll just reach out to me. And I give them that advice to say, here's what I would do. Here's my recommendation, given where you're at. You know, and I try to make them look at where they're currently at and don't look beyond it so much. You know, do the job you have and do it really well and it'll find you. So. I love that. That is awesome. And I think it's just, as you said, it was, it was great that the people noticed, you know, the people higher up John Skipper yeah. and the, like, they noticed that, Hey, wait a second. Like while you're, I don't want to say just doing the live production, but you're doing the live production of all these events, but you're capable of putting a team together that, that, that makes sense. So why don't we bring you on to this role so you can recruit more and more talent over here. And how, so how long at ESPN were you recruiting and, and managing talent for? So it was right after the world cup in 2010. Um, so I want to say they, Norby and John asked me to move over in, in the fall of 10. And I officially started in, in mm-hmm. uh, January of 11. And uh, yeah, so that was, that was the move. And, and I, you know, I, I got to go back and give Bob Iger credit for he manages Disney the same way that he will often take an executive from one position under his hierarchy and move them to a completely different position. ESPN started to do that with a lot of us. And it not only gave you a fresh perspective, it added energy and ideas to parts of the company that probably needed them at the time because you, you've got to stay fresh. And we always used to say that the best time to make a move is when you're in a position of strength. Try it then because you're, you know, the risk risk reward is is lessened because you're already you're already in a position of strength. And the worst time to do it is when you're struggling. Like if, you know, some of these shows that have been torn to shreds, you it's hard to say, okay, we're just giving up or we're gonna make a big talent change. It really is because everyone notices and it looks like you're struggling. If you're doing well, that's the time to to maybe even think about, okay, let's add a personality or let's make a change here just to see if if this could be better. And that's what Iger, Iger impressed upon all of Disney management um, to find your successors. Find, you know, make sure you have a succession plan and that you'll be, you were actually judged by that at ESPN that how, how ready was your successor to take your job? In many ways, it's frightening, but it really does. It's really a smart business play at, for the longevity of any company. 
And if there is longevity in a company, uh, Disney is definitely one of those companies we want to pay attention to. There. So obviously Bob Iger is a smart, smart man. So I'll, yeah. I'll take business advice from him any day of the week. Yep. And I think it makes sense. And I, I like how you said, you know, taking executives from one, one part of the business to another. And it's not like you were going to, you know, a completely foreign different place on the other yeah. side of the earth or anything, but you're, you're, you're staying within your space, but you're now you're doing a different job. As you said, that's still going to inject talent. It's going to inject life. It's just going to inject energy and it's going to bring more opportunities around because you, you can see it, you know, from a different angle and you're, you're seeing it from the live production angle rather yeah. than just the talent management angle, which again, I think is, you know, led and to do some great successes. They weren't afraid to do that at the highest levels. Like John Wildhack was head of programming and Norby was in charge of production. They flipped those two and Norby went to programming. John came over to production. And I always looked at that and I thought that's, you know, it's, it, it's cool. I don't know if they liked it, but I thought, you know what, it's different. Now we have somebody else that's a different perspective running the division that I'm working for. So when I got moved, I, I thought of it much the same way. Very cool. And then so you're at ESPN for over 10 years, right? If I'm not mistaken, 15 yes, years? Yes, 20 years. 20 years. 20 years, 20 years I apologize. Just, just yeah. under 20. So I, I left in January of, of, of uh, 2016. And that was the move to Octagon. Yeah, and then I joined Octagon. currently are now. And as I said before, summer of 16. Summer of 16. And, and I work for Phil DiPicciato, who I think is the very best agent in the business. He's... He's super smart. He's, he's been doing this for so long. And uh, he and I actually negotiated uh, Brad Doherty's deal at ESPN together. I was at ESPN. He was at Octagon. And, and I just liked the way he negotiated. And he and I, we, we, hit, we, we became really good friends on different sides of the table. But he'd always ask me, like, what's important to you guys? What do you need? You know, and I would ask him that same question. And we would arrive at a plan and it, as long as Brad liked it, as long as my bosses liked it, it, would, it worked. And it's, I thought it was, it was negotiating to win for everybody. Exactly. If everybody can be happy, you're going to want to do those deals more and more again. It's the win-win-win yeah. situation. And how, what was it like flipping to the other side of the table? You know, as you said, your <laughs> friends poked you and you had some fun with it. But like, what, what was that? Like, how did you come to terms with it? Cause again, it's kind of been the, the other side. It's been something that you've been dealing with for six years, the other side of the table. So how did you personally come to terms with it? And how did you really take the talent and the expertise you had again from your side of the table and move it to the other side? Michael, it, it was, uh, it, you're right. It, it was a bit of an adjustment when I first started, but because Octagon is such a well-run company, it looked at it, with new eyes and thought like, I should just look at this like it's another ESPN, but it was so different. And I was learning things about marketing and representing brands and how brands position themselves within sports. Um, and it's, and then I looked at our, the body of talent and the body of talent that I was going to go out and recruit and hire and bring aboard Octagon in many ways, it reminded me of exactly what I was doing at ESPN, which was trying to find somebody to work on SportsCenter. SportsCenter was looking for, you know, new talent for a new show or play-by-play -play for college football or a reporter um, or a new host for a new show. So I, I really just applied that same strength production background and, and brought it over to this agency side. And that's probably how I differentiate myself from most other agents is all that production background and then my network, my, my, uh, my relationships. And, and so I know I try to think like I would think if I was at ESPN in the management chair, like what, what do they need and how can this client that I represent be the answer to that need? Exactly. I mean, you were there for so long, you know what they're looking for at pretty much at any given moment, right? You still exactly. have all your friends there. You still know what they do and how they do it. So how much easier did it make it, you know, working for ESPN for 20 years? So knowing the people there, but I'm also going with a, you know, far out assumption that the people that worked at ESPN, some of them moved on to Fox, some of them moved on to NBC and to CBS. So really by working there for 20 years and not leaving, you were still able to know people from all these different organizations. Yes. How much did you lean on that relation, those relationships and that network, especially initially, just to kind of get the word out? Hey guys, I'm actually, I'm representing talent now. I'm not going to be <laughs> recruiting it anymore. 
It, it, well, it's, it's Octagon's PR department was, is excellent. Alyssa Romano does a terrific job and she placed the news in Sports Business Daily and it was in a number of newspapers. So in many cases, I had people calling me, oh, congratulations. And from different levels, like Steve Keener, the president of Little League Baseball reached out to me and I had a great relationship with them and still do. Um, so it, in many ways, it, that work was all done for me because of the strength of Octagon and the reach. And, uh, but yeah, I, I did lean on those, uh, you know, when I was, when I would first be reaching out to Fox, uh, I would call my contacts that I knew very well. When I reached out to CBS, David Burson clearly is a, a name and a contact and a friend that I could go to, to say, Hey, what about this? Um, you know, or let's, let's talk about Sir Nick Faldo's deal or, or whatever. And, um, so you do, you do lean on the relationships that you've developed and uh, you have to, it'd be, you'd be crazy not to, right? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I mean, you might, you've developed a relationship. You might as well just give them a call and tell them what you're up to now. Right. I think they're probably just as interested as you are in them. Um, so I think that part's very interesting and, and, and it's important. And I, again, just kind of, let's take a step back. So you started as the producer of some, a me like a news state a, a news channel right you started doing some news you got the twins um got the twins kind of fell into your lap for lack of a better term that led you to doing 10 years of sports producing you moved on to espn now you're doing talent then you started recruiting talent now you're doing talent management and representation i mean that's just when we put it all together in like a you know a, a quick little snippet that's crazy right like that that's not really how it's supposed to happen <laughs> well I, some of it's, you know, forced on you, right? Like you, if, if you're offered a job and you, you find it enticing, you take it and, and it's a change of career. Um, yeah, it, it, but again, it goes back, it speaks to all the relationships. Like Michelle Tafoya was a reporter working for me at Midwest Sports Channel. No way. It's just a name from the past, but that now she's on the number one show in television and still a, a great friend to this day. Um, you know, it's, it, and I apply the same level of perspective and professionalism on this side of the table as I did on that side of the table. And, and I still am able to talk production with my counterparts, especially like the draft. I just, you know, the draft was so impressive and the job that both the NFL and ESPN did together uh, under very trying circumstances where they can't be flying engineers and technicians everywhere. It went off pretty much without a hitch. You could nitpick on some of the graphics as, as the press has done, but overall, it was just a huge, huge win for all of us to have sports back. <laughs> we were talking defense. We were talking who had the best draft, you know, instead of, you know, what the fallout of this virus is going to be. So let's hope we get more of that. And that's what sports is supposed to do. It's supposed to take us away from the things that are happening. And this yeah. is the weirdest time in human history because it's two straight months almost now that we're at without sports. Um, and we don't have that extra outlet to kind of be able to get away. We know everything that's going around us in the world, but for three hours, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to listen to Gary, Keith and Ron. They're going to make me laugh. The so Mets good. are going to make me cry. And then I'm going to go to sleep and we can do it all <laughs> again the next day. So that's just how it is. And uh, just a couple more questions, I guess, with, with, actually now representing talent i mean whenever we hear of agents you know we think of the best baseball players and football players and basketball players in the world and what these agents have to do and and you know the crazy stuff they have to do i don't think media talent is quite to that level but what is it like representing these these guys and girls and and helping them and and really making sure that they're doing all the things that they need to do. Like how much, I don't want to call it babysitting just in case one of them listens. Um, but you know, what, what exactly goes into it on that level? And I guess if you could compare and contrast it to a, a sports agent from the, the athlete talent side. Really good question, Mike. I, I represent, I, on my number of clients is in the 60s and then Phil has another 25 that I help him with because he's president of the company. So it's a, it's a lot of people I try to stay as in touch with all of my clients as I can. I know what they're up to. I know which ones are employed and how they're doing. And there are some clients that need constant checking in on. Um, and then there are others that don't need it at all. And 
just want to hear from you if I've got like some sort of brand deal for them or whatever, which is fine because I, I want more of that for, for all of my clients. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it, again, I try to apply the same volume management skill that I had at ESPN because I was in charge of a lot of things at one time and a, a number of people. Um, and uh, I try to take that same large perspective and apply it to this, this group of people to say, which ones need the individual help and which ones, um, and I try to, again, check in whenever I can, uh, especially during this time, because everyone's wondering what's going to happen. And they'll wonder if I've been in touch with the league or, you know, and I do have contacts at networks that are in touch with leagues, but again, they're, they're all like you and I, no one really knows. So we're just here, hopefully, as I said, spreading some positivity and we'll see how it goes. And I just think it's very interesting. Um, you know, I guess it, it makes sense. It's a very subjective answer. There's not a, a clear cut, but know your client, right? Know your customer and understand who they are exactly. and what they need. And you as their agent uh, or represent, representative, you're able to then say, okay, I can touch base with you once a week. I can touch base with you once a month when I can bring you some money and you're happy and I'm happy. So if that's just how it works, you know, as long as you're doing what you are supposed to do and they are doing what they're supposed to do and a very symbiotic and easy relationship seems like it can come from it. Exactly. I love it. And do you have any good stories? Maybe leave out the names for us or anything like that. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, so, you know, as you said, you wanted to be on air talent. Um, I think your voice sounds fine. I think your, your face looks good. I, I don't know, man. I think you missed the boat. I think you could have done this. Oh, who, who knows? I, I, I used to look at my, It'd be funny to go back and look at those audition tapes. They're all on VHS. I used to send out like a hundred at a time and all into these small markets and it would have been fun. Who knows where that would have taken me, but um, I'm, I'm really happy the way things turned and would not change a thing about the experience. And now I'm with Octagon, which is a, like I said at the very beginning, a really good company. So, and great people. I love it, man. Well, all around. That part's the most important. You got to like who you work with because you probably see them more than your family. Um, and I think that that part's <laughs> very important. But Tim, this was incredible. Uh, I sincerely appreciate your time today. I think we went over just about everything. I don't know. Is there anything? Uh, I think we covered it all, right? Great job. It was really Thank fun. I enjoyed, the, you. I enjoyed the conversation. You're really good at it. Well, hopefully one day I can say, hey, Tim, I need you to get Give me that brand deal. What are we doing? But until then, uh, Tim Scanlon, VP of Sports Broadcast and Media at Octagon. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode with Tim. As I said, so much fun, so smart, so informative, lots and lots to learn. And I hope you all did take something away from this conversation. So please make sure to follow Tim on all of his socials. Everything will be in the show notes. Please also make sure to give us a five-star review, especially if you're listening on Apple or iTunes. That would be super, super helpful. So thank you all so much for your time. It's the only thing we don't get more of. So I appreciate you giving me some of yours and I hope you make it a wonderful day. Yes.